witnesses of the divine life. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of Trinity Sunday, May 30th, 2021, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. We serve the God who sacrificially sends himself out to heal his creation. He restores us to himself and enables us to share in the divine life. Reverend David Pelegi reminds us that God then sends us out to live lives of love and unity, modeled after the divine community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before we begin, are you ready to get out of the house? Ready for a trip? Join David Pelegi in Poland August 9th through 20th, 2021. Take a deep dive into 1,000 years of Jewish history. We'll start in Warsaw and work our way to Krakow. We will visit medieval cities, castles, and churches to better understand the historical context of the Polish Jewish experience. We'll also touch on the Hebrew Christian communities that existed before World War II. Land cost is less than $2,000. Visit narrowbridgetour.com for more information. Narrowbridgetour.com The Bible is an absolute treasure, as you know. Over 5 billion copies sold. No book will ever outsell this book. And it is a privilege to be able to read it, study it, especially in public. And before we do, to get our minds and spirits ready, there was a prayer called the Collect. And it, was a, it gathered the thoughts and themes of the day, but also got us ready uh, in the right frame to open up God's word. So as I pray this, uh, close your eyes and let this prayer touch your spirit as we give it back to God. O oh God, your name is veiled in mystery, yet we dare to call you Father. Your Son was begotten before all ages, yet is born before us, among us in time. Your Holy Spirit fills the earth and the whole creation, yet it was poured forth now into our hearts. Because you have made us and loved us and called us by name, draw us more deeply into your divine life, that we may glorify you rightly through your Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. The readings taken from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through to 8. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom. Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes, but are blind, who have, who have ears, but are deaf. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 44. I'll read from verses 1 to 11. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, 
Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name of Israel. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol who can profit nothing? People will do who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. We've just had two uh, beautiful English accents, have we not? Now I'm going to butcher it with some Australian. But it is the deacon's privilege to always read the gospel, and it truly is a privilege. Please stand as we honor the Lord, as he teaches us through his word. The gospel for today is the gospel of John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave this one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father in heaven, we, um, being your children, are always in need of your guidance and your direction. We need to be taught. And Father, we need to be transformed into your image, to the image of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Pray that you'll be at work amongst us so that we will reflect each one of us something of the life of the Godhead. That, Lord, we'll not only bring ourselves blessing and blessing to others, but ultimately we'll bring you glory. We ask this in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So, so said on Wednesday, today we are um, celebrating uh, Trinity Sunday. Trinity Sunday is the only holiday, feast day in the Christian calendar uh, that is uh, built around a, a doctrine or around theology. Everything else that we celebrate is historical, uh, either in the life, life of the people of Israel, but especially in the life of the church and in the life of Jesus the Messiah. So we not only celebrate Easter and Passover, as you well know, but uh, there are numerous minor holidays that uh, somehow get ignored or forgotten. We remember Jesus being circumcised, Jesus being presented in the temple. March the 25th is the Annunciation. When the angel comes to Mary, we, of course, um, have a season of Lent. We remember the birth of John the Baptist, so on and so forth. But here we have a theological uh, holiday. And uh, talking about the Trinity at any time and... Uh, and any location would be difficult, is difficult, uh, but it's especially difficult uh, here in Jerusalem for a number of reasons. Of course, we have a um, very large Jewish Muslim population with the Christians, the Christian community being a very, very tiny minority uh, in this country. And of course, the idea of Trinity uh, in the minds of uh, both Jews and Muslims uh, uh, brings or evokes uh, ideas that uh, we don't consider to be biblical or we believe that uh, there is a misunderstanding yes, in the way that uh, they at least understand such a thing. So, you know, the T word in this town is not uh, terribly popular. Of course, we also have in the last few years a whole cadre, do we not, of people who appreciate their Jewish roots, who... Uh, want to be more intentional about their discipleship and to follow Jesus. And they understand that uh, to follow Jesus and to really get at, get at what he's saying, that he must be understood in a Jewish context. But unfortunately, um, with that package goes oftentimes some ignorance. And uh, when we want to talk about either the divinity of Jesus or the existence of a Godhead with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in community, uh, then we hear such nonsense. Well, this is the invention of Greek philosophy, or Constantine um, forced this upon the church, uh, and therefore not, it, it is not biblical and certainly, and certainly not Jewish. And finally, the challenge, yes, is for most of us uh, as Christians, um, who in the words of Immanuel Kant, yes, see nothing practical 
about the Trinity. It's an abstract idea that doesn't touch us, that doesn't, we don't connect with. And uh, we find it hard to explain and even harder to uh, defend, and therefore we generally just push it aside. So I'd like to just look at the text um, for today and ask, you know, what is relevant? Yes, and what can we as a community take away from this, especially in the context in which we live as uh, a small minority? And I'd like to begin with two texts that are not, that really weren't appointed for the day. I appointed them. And for those of you who worry about such things, may I remind you that um, uh, whether it's the liturgy or the calendar, both of those are designed to, um, to serve us as a community. Yes, we don't serve, we don't serve the Christian calendar. We don't, serve, uh, we don't serve the liturgy. So when necessary, we can adopt and change and should do so. And so our first, well, let me just set the context for both readings from Isaiah. This comes from what uh, most scholars and now preachers call second Isaiah. Uh, that's a part of Isaiah that was written uh, at the end of the exile or the beginning of the restoration of the Jewish people to Babylon. And um, these two passages show us the condition or the state of God's people. The people of God, yes, in their exile, they are dejected. You might say they're depressed. You might say they're confused. And you might say that they're buffeted. Yes, they are surrounded by thousands of deities. And their deity, the God of Israel, the God who makes heaven and earth, seems to be powerless because after all, he allowed his house to be destroyed and his people to go into exile. Yes, where is the covenant, they asked? Where are God's promises? And so God wants to um, bring that confusion, or you might say that doubt, to an end. And he sets up a courtroom scene. And this uh, courtroom scene, in this courtroom scene, he's going to call witnesses. First, he's going to call Israel and the nations to come to this, uh, to this trial. And at this trial, God's going to present the evidence. What evidence is he going to present that he has not, yes, in any way uh, been diminished or a sovereignty over the gods have not, uh, has not been uh, uh, swept away because of, uh, you might say, the chastisement of Israel, that he is above every God, and that he has not forgotten the covenant. He has not forgotten his loving kindness, his hesed. And so we have this courtroom scene, and he calls the witnesses. And surprisingly, the witnesses he calls, he calls are the very same people Yes, who don't believe it. And he calls Israel to be his witness. And the calling of Israel to be his witness is simply this, I believe, that Israel, the people of Israel, continue to survive and they continue to exist. And that is proof enough, yes, of, of God's sovereignty. And they are on the cusp, yes, of being restored uh, to their country as promised. God promised the exile would, I don't know how long he promised the exile. He promised the temple would not be built for 70 years. The exile lasted for 50. And so God is about to do something. But first and foremost, the nations need to see the evidence. And the people of Israel also need to see the evidence, even though they themselves are the evidence. That was, reminds me of that um, very uh, humorous story about um, the king of Prussia, right? The king of Prussia, Frederick the Great. Frederick the Great was an agnostic, a man of his time, a man of the Enlightenment. 
and he was one day toying or having fun with his court chaplain, surely a good Lutheran. So he asked the chaplain, Chaplain, I don't really have much time, but give me one proof for the existence of God. You know the story, everybody? So the court chaplain says, the Jews, your majesty, the Jews, right? Their continued existence testifies to God and testifies to God's faithfulness. It may not have been very easy, and there are many difficulties along the way, but the fact that they still continue as a people, yes, witnesses is indeed a witness to God and to God's, not only to God's sovereignty, but to his hesed, to his loving kindness and his commitment, yes, to fulfill his promises. And so the people of Israel are told to be witnesses in all of this. They're not told to do much. They're simply told to be. You might say that there is some, in one of these passages, some notion of proclamation, being a witness as in proclaiming or telling others, telling the nation. It's not very strong and it's not very certain. Yes. But just that the people of Israel exist and they're told to be faithful to God's Torah is in itself a witness. Now, what does all this have to do with Trinity Sunday? And what does it have to do with the passage from John chapter 3? Very, you might say, popular passage in uh, some churches. Passage that um, somehow um, becomes a gospel within a gospel, which is unfortunate. But in, of course, chapter 3, we all know the story of Nicodemus, who's something of a half-believer, who comes to Jesus by night. A Pharisee who's got all kinds of misunderstandings, and uh, John likes to use, John's gospel likes to use misunderstandings. Uh, it enables Jesus to kind of set the record straight, or to set people, to, to, to set people straight. And... Um, Jesus here talks about um, being born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And I always like to remind people that being born again is not the end in itself. Being born again enables us to enter this kingdom of God. And of course, then <clears throat> Jesus speaks of the Spirit. And then Jesus begins to speak of himself as the Son of Man and uh, talking about the Son of Man being lifted up and uses uh, uh, the imagery of Moses in the wilderness of lifting up the snake. Here Jesus isn't talking about exactly being lifted up on a pole, although this does refer to his crucifixion. But instead this refers to his ascension. And of course the, the theme of John's Gospel is that Jesus comes down, that he's sent by God, and of course, there will be a return. There will be this, this ascension. And then we get to the, the verses that um, certainly are well-loved uh, by many people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's questionable, by the way, whether these are the words of the gospel writer or whether these are the words of Jesus and my red letter edition, uh, we don't have these words attributed to Jesus. But they're a commentary uh, on what Jesus has to say. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now when we read these passages, when we read this passage, we hopefully, our minds start thinking Wait a minute, what is, what is familiar about this passage? And what should be familiar about this passage is Genesis 22, is it not? This is the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God calls Abraham, Abraham, take your son, 
Yes, the son that you love and go to the place where I'm going to show you. And so here we have, for the first time, mention of a beloved son. And I think it's interesting, even though we've pointed it out, this pointed this out before, we can certainly point it out again, that the first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible, it's mentioned in connection with sacrifice. It's mentioned in connection with Abraham giving his son. It's mentioned in connection with giving or even sending. Now, you would think that there would be a different context for, for love. Yes, but love and sacrifice have this intimate connection. And of course, the story of Abraham and Isaac prefigure, yes, what happens on the cross. And not only prefigures what happens on the cross, but I don't know if you've ever noticed, but that Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, and we leave aside for a moment, for a week, for a month, or maybe even for five years, all the moral implications of that story. But his willingness to sacrifice Isaac has benefit for the nations of the world. Right? For God so loved the world. Right? And if we're thinking of terms of Abraham and Isaac, then we only have to go to the end of chapter 22, where it says the following. The angel of the Lord said, called to Abraham from heaven a second time, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your only son, it surely will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take um, possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Right? The blessing comes to the nations because of Abraham's obedience. Not only does blessing come to Israel and the Jewish people, but to all the nations. Later, for those of you who are students of Second Temple period, uh, Judaism, like uh, June is, then you might know that uh, this theme is picked up in uh, books like Ben Sirah and Jubilees. And so here we have in this passage, God sends his son to the world because he loves the world. Interestingly enough, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, God sends his son not to the world, but to who? Who's the primary recipients of God sending his son? Israel, the Jewish people. But I think the Gospels here, yes, by highlighting, John highlights the world, the rest of the Gospels highlight Israel. Do they not, uh, I think, point to this kind of symbiotic or interdependent, spiritually speaking, relationship that exists between Israel, and here I refer to the Jewish people, and the nations themselves. Right? There's a mutuality and interdependence that Paul has to say in Romans chapter 11, this is a mystery. This is a mystery. And what is it that we have on offer here? Yes, God sins, God gives, God freely provides his son. Yes, and in, in the process of providing his son, he gives us what? What, do we, what is the, the fruit of this giving or sending? Eternal life. Eternal life, right? This is God's gift to us. Now, again, it's worth just repeating to try to wash, I think, out of our minds or wash out of our Christian experience, yes, the limited understanding of what it means to be saved or the limited understanding of what uh, eternal life is all about. You may notice it doesn't say everlasting life. We think of eternal life as everlasting life. And of course, eternal life 
does have an eternal component. Eternal life is something that happens now and continues on after we die. There's no question about that. But eternal life, yes, that's on offer here. What is this gift? Yes, this gift is as understood in this gospel and in the epistles of John. This gift is an invitation, yes, to share God's life or to share the life that God has in himself and God shares with the Son. And in the process of this, you might say, this sharing of life together, yes, through Jesus, we're also invited to share that life. That salvation is a, that salvation is a relationship. It's a communion. It's a union. It begins now. And it continues after we die. And how do we get into this? Yes, it is a free gift. And yes, we don't earn it. But at the same time, we have to respond. Yes, and that response is, um, look, that response is certainly one of um, trusting, yes, or having confidence, or uh, abiding. But actually, there's something more to it, right? It's a dynamic relationship, and it implies... Yes, a commitment to Jesus, to who he claims to be, not just who we concoct him to be. You know, in every generation, we have a Jesus that sort of looks like us, a Jesus molded and shaped in our own personality, a Jesus molded and shaped by the culture in which we live. And of course, you know, we, and just think back in the last few years, let's see, we have a Jesus who's going to make us rich. Yes. Um, you know, he's a big businessman who wants to fill our pockets full of money. We have Jesus the poet. Um, Jesus the revolutionary, you know, who's going to come help us fight the rich and, you know, overturn bourgeois society. And Jesus, my great big buddy in the sky. You know, and Jesus, the, the American patriot, the Brazilian patriot, um, I don't know, the, the British patriot, right, where we marry nationalism and Jesus together, sadly. Right, but eternal life is when we make a commitment, we accept Jesus for who he claims to be, and we put, that, we put those words or his commandments into practice. Yes. And actually, it's an imitation of Jesus. But even more than an imitation of Jesus, because people do talk about the imitation of Christ, it is an imitation of the Godhead. It is an imitation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is where the... the well, you want to call it the triunity. Some of my friends don't like to use the word trinity. It's not found in the Bible. Okay. But there is a community of persons. Yes. There is a Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they existed before eternity. And God didn't somehow have to invent the Son and the Spirit in order to rescue us. Right? Salvation is... Also, a rescue from death. Is it not we as a human family were diseased and were perishing? And the vaccine, our vaccine, is eternal life. That's the vaccine that was provided for us by the Trinity. Because what we call salvation is a Trinitarian event. It is God the Father sending the Son. It is the Father and the Son, depending on your theology, or perhaps only the Father, sending the Spirit. Yes, right? God who lives in a community of persons, a God who loves, a God who looks outward, a God who's not sort of self-absorbed 
A God who's not staring at his belly button. A God who's, uh, as Aristotle would say, God who's unmovable. No, our God is dynamic. He's not static. Yes? First, that relationship and that reaching outward was already with the Father and was already with the Son and the Spirit before time began. And it continues today. So God's the one who initiates the rescue. He brings us, right, the Son. The Son sends us the Spirit. And ultimately, the Spirit sends us, yes, to do what? To be God's witnesses. To be God's witnesses in the world. And salvation and the sending and the witness that we have is indeed a Trinitarian event. By its nature, it's Trinitarian. Yes. What is the, um, the evidence for that? The evidence for that, this idea of, of being witnesses and living or entering this Trinitarian life. And we've spoken about this before, and I don't want to repeat myself. But yes, what is the life of the Godhead or the Trinity like? Can I remind you that it's a life of unity? That it's a life of love? It's a life in which each of the members honor one another and prefer one another, in which they cooperate and you might call the mission of God to bring rescue to his, to, uh, to his creation. That it's a relationship that doesn't exist with one party trying to dominate the other, or force or manipulation, or it's not a relationship of anxiety or a relationship of fear. This is the life of the Trinity. And throughout John's Gospel, yes, we have passages such as the following, right? That tells us uh, to live this life uh, as a way of being God's witnesses in the world. So 1334, I'll read a little bit. John 13. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so that you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And he goes on to say, Peter says, Lord, I want to follow you. I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you before the rooster crows, you will disown me. In John 17, it says, my prayer for them, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. That's the entering into that, right? Entering into that relationship, that Trinitarian relationship. And of course, it's done through the Holy Spirit. So it is Father, Son, and Spirit. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Yes, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as I, sorry, even as you have loved me. And so the emphasis in this gospel is one on love and unity. And uh, that might sound very abstract and undoable, but uh, not only in John's Gospel and in 1 John, but throughout the New Testament, 
Yes, it is made practical for us. It's made concrete. But we're called to be witnesses of this Trinitarian God. We're called to be witnesses of the relationship, yes, that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father. Again, one of difference, yet one of unity. One which, in which there are different functions, and yet at the same time, the same goal, the same mission. And this is no different, yes, than what we read in the book of Isaiah. The people of Israel, yes, were called to be witnesses. Even before, yes, the people of Israel are called to do anything, they're called to be something. They're called to be someone. The way this is, people often talk about, I have a calling. My calling is to go out and give out Bibles to seamen coming to the port of Ashdod. Or my calling is to feed the hungry. My calling is to feed the poor. But rarely do I hear people talk about my calling. Our calling is actually to find ways, practically, yes, and concretely, in which we can love each other. Or find ways in which we can work together in unity. And as I explained last week, it's not unity at any price or any cost. There are limits for those who worry about, you know, a godless ecumenicalism. One talks about, oh, my calling is to be transformed into the image of the Father and the Son, or to live a life worthy of the calling that I have. That's the point we, some of our members are pursuing, praying about ordination. Yes, in the Anglican Church to become deacons. And I think one point that we try to emphasize over and over and over again, that if you're called to ordain ministry, you're not called to preach. And you're not called to do weddings. Anybody can preach. Anybody can do a wedding. Some of, some of you can do it better than, than the rest of us. Anyone could stand behind this table and give communion. The calling at ordination, the calling to be a deacon and then a priest, is a calling to be a servant. Calling to be a priest is, to be, is a calling to stand between God and the community and to intercede for that community, just as the priests of Israel interceded for the people of Israel. And so before we set out on the mission of God, we should, we really, yes, need to be clear what our first and foremost witness is. See, it's only after this that Jesus says, at the end of John, Again, very Trinitarian. Jesus says, um, they're following. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. And he sends them out to proclaim. But proclamation only comes after yes, the community is sure, yes, about who it is, yes, and who it represents, and how it represents and demonstrates, yes, verifies the existence of this God that um, certainly people, most people in the world and people in our local environment have uh, a very difficult concept understanding. You see, when God called the nations in Israel to the courtroom, yes, part of largely what he wanted to do was not only bring conviction to the nations for their idolatry, but also to strengthen Israel, right, to restore the confidence of the people of Israel, to reassure them 
that uh, he um, is indeed God, that he is indeed sovereign, and that even if things don't look like they're going the way they should, yes, they have no reason to doubt, and that their response ultimately is to be faithful. And I believe that before we can go and proclaim, which is something that we should do, I believe that oftentimes our community, um, our communities, uh, especially in many Western settings, we have lost confidence in the gospel. And we're told uh, that the idea of witness or the idea of even being missional, not missionary, but missional, yes, is something imperialistic. Or you were imposing the culture of you know, white Christian Europe upon other people in the world. And we face the challenge of thousands of deities, just as ancient Israel had thousands of deities and thousands of things that people have made God. And there are thousands of philosophies and worldviews, you know, whether it's postmodernism or the sexual revolution. And we all pause. And we're not quite sure. Yes, we're not quite sure, you know, really who we are and what we're supposed to do. First and foremost, yes, we have a call to be, our call to being. And that call to being was once described by a theologian or a preacher, I don't know. He said, in the context of the gospel, or the context of the Bible, the call to be somebody is to live our lives in a way that would not make sense unless there was a God. Right? To live our lives in a way that would not make sense unless there is a God. The God who reveals himself in the Bible and the God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think when we can recover that, yes, when we can recover that and live our lives and live in a community, yes, that seeks to or that is called to imitate, yes, the Father and the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit, I think our confidence in the gospel will be rejuvenated or in some cases be, will be restored. Because living in unity with difference or being able to love others despite, yes, all our crankinesses or all our fear or all our anxiety is the greatest demonstration that the gospel is true. Right? That God indeed did so love the world and that he does give eternal life. Eternal life isn't something that's going to happen to us when we die but it's something that should be evident, yes, in the here and now. In those verses that we read about Israel, yes, Israel was told on several occasions, do not fear, yes, do not fear. Well, certainly, yes, that can be directed to us in the world in which we live. Do not fear, yes, do not fear because the Lord God, yes, the Redeemer, the King of Israel, the Creator of heaven and earth, yes, loves his creation, yes, and indeed wants to rescue us. And with all the so-called competition or all the philosophies and deities these eventually, sooner rather than later, will all show themselves to be a failure and indeed will all collapse. So let us not lose heart and let us be convinced, which is very necessary before we try to convince others, yes, of this, the reality of a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who calls the world into relationship. Father, we pray 
that indeed you will restore our confidence, that indeed you will transform us, indeed that we will live lives not only that please you, but live lives that will tell the world that we are your disciples. And Lord, we pray that, that those things that we find inside of us, Lord, we pray that uh, whether it be fear or some kind of anxiety or some kind of greed or some kind of uh, inability, Lord, to fully trust you and to have confidence in you. Lord, there's our unforgiveness or our refusal to give up our rebellion, our happy sin. Lord, we pray that uh, you will deal with us, each one of us. We pray that those things will be healed or removed. And we ask that you will give us all grace to repent and to turn to you, to confess, Lord, and to ask not simply for your forgiveness, but for your total cleansing, yes, and your transformation. And Lord, we ask this not only for us as individuals, but for our families and our marriages and our working relationships and the relationships of our community with other communities. Lord, we pray you do this work in us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.